chapter 4, fourth chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. We're going to begin in verse 14. Probably would be important if you didn't bring a Bible to pick one up. We'll be looking a number of times at this passage this morning. And this morning we're going to pick up on a series that we began last summer in the first part of the book of Hebrews. And this happens to be my personal favorite book in the New Testament for a number of reasons. Uh, One is that more than any other book, it explains the gulf between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It explains in detail why Christians view the Old Testament as an unfinished story, that it contains promises made by God that require that there be some kind of finish to the story that deals with promises kept by God, and that's what the New Testament is. It informs us why we regard Jesus properly as being the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament expectations. And more than any other book in the New Testament, it's written in a very exalted style. It evidences careful composition and has a number of passages of profound eloquence and great emotional power. And I've never had the opportunity to preach through the letter, and particularly through this section, the central part of the letter. And uh, this summer, Paul's going to be spending a lot of his time working on our transition for this next year. And so I decided to give him some time to do that. And this summer, I'm going to preach every week for the summer, or at least the majority of the summer, through the next five chapters of the letter to the Hebrews. One of the characteristics of this letter is that the writer will often introduce a thought in one verse, one statement about it, and then he'll let it lie fallow for a number of verses or even chapters before picking it up again. And that happens in this passage where he refers to Jesus being a high priest. It happens that back in chapter 2 and verse 17, he mentions Jesus is a high priest. It says Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to atone for his people's sins. And that idea that Jesus is a high priest is just thrown out there at that point. And then it lies fallow while the writer goes on and he deals for two chapters with how Jesus is superior to Moses and to the deliverance that Moses gave to the people in the Old Testament. And that ended in the last verse in chapter, thir- chapter 4 and verse 13. And now he's going to demonstrate for the next five chapters that Jesus, in fact, is a high priest. In fact, he's the very thing he said in 2.17. He's a merciful and faithful high priest, merciful to his people and faithful to God. Now, if you want to understand the book of Hebrews, you have to think not uh, of uh, like an apple, that is a beautiful fruit, but has just a skin, and underneath is apple, you have to think of peeling an onion. It's very much like peeling an onion. You know, the outer part of an onion is just dry, papery, and you take it off. It's not good. But then you get down to the meat of the onion, and the meat of the onion is found in layers. And what you find is after you take off a layer of the onion, you come to another layer that is of exactly the same nature, although each successive layer is thicker and um, richer and more pungent. And that's what the book of Hebrews is like. He takes a subject, now it's the high priesthood of Jesus, and he goes layer by layer. And each time what you find is he's talking about the same subject, but he's going deeper and he's giving you more information. He deals first with the priesthood of Jesus, 
compared to Aaron in the Old Testament. And then he deals with the covenant that he was under. And he deals with the temple that he ministers in. And he deals with the ministry that he has there. And all of those things, each in detail, until it comes to the climax in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, and a profound warning to the readers. And we're going to work ourselves towards that climax this summer. So let's read the introduction to this theme. In fact, why don't you stand with me? As they did in the ancient church, they stood for the reading of Scripture, three verses, verses 14 through 16, Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who is over the house of God. Excuse me. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is God's word. Our gracious God and Father, we are grateful that you have called us together into your presence, and we ask that this morning you would undertake to teach us yourself We ask that as your son broke the bread in the presence of the disciples, you would break to us the bread of life this morning. You would prepare our hearts as well to share in the bread of the Lord's Supper as we look at this passage. So we offer you this in submission to you, asking you to guide and teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Often uh, when people are involved in some kind of dispute in business or domestically, they'll hire a mediator. And you know, a mediator is just a person who uh, stands between two parties and he or she listens carefully to what each one has to say and then renders a decision on how to resolve the dispute. In that situation, both parties have to agree on the mediator because if the mediator is thought to favor one side only to represent their interest, it's not going to work. And that idea of the need for a mediator between two parties is built into the Bible story. In fact, it's found uh, from the beginning of the Bible. And uh, what happens in the Old Testament is that God appointed, when Moses took the people out of Israel, he appointed Moses' brother, Aaron, to be the first priest. And all of his male descendants would follow in his priesthood, and he became the high priest, and in every generation there was appointed from among the descendants of Aaron a high priest. And the priests were there to act as mediators between the worshipers and God. They represented the people to God when they offered sacrifices, and they represented God to the people when they taught them what God wanted them to be and to do. Now, some of us in a room of this size must have grown up in the Roman Catholic Church or married into a Catholic family. And one of the differences between Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches and most of the rest of churches, which are generally called Protestant, one of the differences is that in the Catholic and Orthodox churches, you have priests. And the priests act as mediators between God and the worshipers. You may have been taught that the priest is the vicar of Christ. And as the vicar of Christ, if you go to the priest in confession, you confess your sins. When the priest hears confession and pronounces forgiveness of sins, 
you are to take that as though Jesus himself does that. And those of us who are not from a Catholic background, we often say that the difference is we may go directly to God, right? We can go directly to God in our spirits. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a priest or a mediator to bring us to God. We can go directly. And I have to tell you, if you believe that, you're wrong. We do need a mediator. That's taught throughout the Bible ever since the fall. Because of human sin, no human being, in the Bible's teaching, is capable of going to God directly. We must have someone who will take us into the presence of God and represent us. And the whole question is not whether we need a mediator, it's who is our mediator. And it shouldn't surprise you that in the New Testament, Jesus is called the mediator between God and people. First Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And we've come to that point in the letter where the writer is going to explain at great length for more than five chapters that Jesus is the high priest who is superior to Aaron. He's superior to the priesthood. That When the writer wrote this letter to the people he was writing to in a small church in Rome, when he wrote this letter, that group of priests was still ministering in the temple in Jerusalem. And this paragraph functions as like a segue. It's both a completion of the previous section on the superiority of Jesus over Moses, and it moves you to the superiority of Jesus over Aaron. In the Old Testament, the people had a mediator, the priests, and especially the high priest. The high priest represented all of the worshipers one day a year when he took the blood of sacrificial animals and he carried it through the first room of the temple called the holy place, past the curtain inscribed with cherubim or angels into the second room there in darkness where there was the Ark of the Covenant. And he sprinkled the blood of atonement on the mercy seat or the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. They had a mediator who did that for them once a year. And the point is made in the first verse that I read, since then we have a, have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The point is, we do have a high priest. We do have one who mediates between ourselves and God, and it's Jesus. Don't think you can go directly to God. That's a Hollywood concept. That's a God made up in people's own minds. Our God is a consuming fire, we're told in this book. John, the writer of the gospel, says no one has ever seen God the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, he has revealed him. And as we'll see as time goes on, thank God we have a mediator and that our mediator is Jesus. Now we're told th three things in this passage about the mediator and the mediation of Jesus. Uh, this high priest whom God has appointed for us, we're told that he is effective, that he is sympathetic, and that he's sinless. He's effective, sympathetic, and sinless. First, he's effective. He's effective because the passage presents him as having been accepted by God in his ministry. We have a high priest whose ministry has been fully accepted by God. Our high priest, unlike those who went before in the line of Aaron, has passed through the heavens into the presence of God. The high priest that God appointed under the Old Covenant 
like Aaron, they didn't pass through the heavens. They passed through a representation of the heavens that they were told to make according to a pattern that God gave them through a holy place with certain implements where only the priest could go into the most holy place where only one person could go, the high priest, only one day a year carrying blood. And they had to do it time after time, but our mediator has passed through the heavens. He has been raised from the dead. His ministry has been fully accepted by God so that it doesn't need to be repeated. He has returned to the true tabernacle or tent of worship that is in heaven itself. Now, remember what I said about this book unfolding like layers of an onion. These words, pass through the heavens, are not explored in any great depth here, but they're going to become operative in many different ways as you move through this section of the letter. And he's going to, uh, here he's just introducing a concept, the concept that is going to be more deeply explored, that the high priest following in Aaron's line did something time after time that had to be repeated because it wasn't really effective, but not so Jesus. He has passed through the heavens into the very presence of God and offered the blood of his atonement one time. But not only are we told here that we are sure that his ministry on behalf of the people of God was accepted, but he is fully able to represent us before God because we have a high priest who is sympathetic with our weaknesses. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Now, this is a point we have to be very, very careful in our thinking. This passage says that he is sympathetic with our weaknesses. It does not say that he is sympathetic with our sin. Uh, Those are things that are so very closely tied together in our experience that we have a great deal of trouble separating them. And yet, even though they are closely related, they are distinct. You have to think of it this way. There are two characteristics of a human being. One is something we are not responsible for before God. The other is something that we are responsible for before God. One is our weakness that describes our creatureliness. That is, we will always have a distance between ourselves and God that is You might say just it's ontological. It has to do with our very makeup, our nature. It is unlike God. We get tired. We get hungry. We get cold and thirsty. We can call this natural weakness. We are made by God, and we're made from the very beginning, before the entrance of sin, to be creatures who are less than God. But we're also weak in another way, according to the Bible. We can call this our moral weakness, not our natural weakness. Our moral weakness describes that we are sinful And sinfulness is a description of the fact that we are prone to do things that are wrong. At any moment, we are capable of breaking the commandments of God. Now, those two things, our creatureliness and our sinfulness, those two things are closely related, but they have to be understood to be distinct. So think of a little girl, let's say three or four years of age, who is hungry and thirsty and tired The day at the park has been fun with her mom, but as her mom takes her to the car to put her in the car, she, there in the parking lot, throws herself down on the ground and begins to scream and cry, and her mother picks her up to comfort her, and the little girl lashes out at her mother and makes accusations and even strikes at her. Now, let's explore that for a bit. Her being hungry and tired is not something for which she is guilty. 
that's a part of her humanness. It's a part of being a created and dependent being, and we all know what that's like in our material bodies. We're prone to those things, but um, it's not something that you can say is added to human nature. It's a part of human nature to be limited so that we need a regular intake of food and drink and rest and those kind of things. On the other hand, what she does with her tiredness has moral implications. To lash out in anger, to thrash around, hit and scream accusations, well, that, at least in the Bible's perspective, is a sinful way to handle our creaturely limitations. Now, with a four-year-old, if we're a wise parent, we are apt to overlook it. That behavior, at least for the moment, we realize we need to fill the tank of the child physically. And so after a cracker and a bit of juice and a nap in the back seat, things are going to be better, right? And the most that we might do with a three- or four-year-old child is, is at bedtime make it a small conversation. Remember at the park today when you were tired and hungry and such and such happened? However, the, the parent knows that that behavior is wrong that that is behavior that needs to be rooted out as a child grows up. The child is going to need to learn to uh, live with tiredness and hunger and handle it in better ways. And if you don't believe that, just imagine the same child, 34 years old, now working at a job, goes to a long business meeting, emotionally draining. She's tired and hungry at 4 o'clock, and she just wants a few minutes by herself. And they tell her, now we have to go out to dinner with clients if she throws herself on the ground and begins to scream and cry and lash out. I think you get the point. As human beings, we live in a fallen world, and we have a great deal of trouble distinguishing between our weakness, our bodily limitations, and our sinfulness. After all, in our experience, they're closely, protect, they're closely connected. When we're hungry or tired, we get to be grumpy, and we say things that we wouldn't otherwise say when we're pushed into a corner in terms of our feelings and capacity to handle things, we might tell white lies. I mean, there's all kinds of things that human behavior demonstrates are results of our creatureliness, and yet they're two different things. And this says that our high priest Jesus is able to sympathize with our creaturely weakness because he assumed, he assumed a human body. And his human body was like ours. It was frail. It had creature weakness. He is acquainted with the human condition, and he is able to be gentle with us. And that is why we trust him to be our mediator for us, because he is one of us. But the verse ends with three words that I didn't read a moment ago, yet without sin. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way was tempted as us, yet without sin. You see, um, sin is not an essential part of human nature. Creaturely weakness is an essential part of human nature. God built it into us. No matter what happens in the future, if we are restored to God and we're found in his presence, there will be an almost, in our minds, limitless gulf between ourselves and God in the sense of who God is and who we are. The Bible's teaching sin is not like that. It's not natural to us. Sin even though we experience it as being universal and we have trouble imagining what it would be like not to have sinful impulses, it's something from the Bible's perspective that was added to our nature as a result of the fall. That's why Jesus could be fully human yet without sin. Now, you see, 
what is said is we have a high priest who is effective because his ministry has been accepted by God. He has accomplished what it is he set out to do. He's sympathetic with our condition, but we have a high priest who isn't a sinner like us. He has a quality of God, that's sinlessness. The passage never says he is sympathetic with our sinfulness. In fact, because Jesus is both God and man in one person, we would have to say that he's not sympathetic with it. He hates it. He detests and abominates sin. That's the character of God. His whole nature is hostile to it. Our high priest is sinless, and because of that, so to speak, God the Father can trust him to be the mediator between us and God. He both represents us before God and he represents God before us. We have, a, we have a Savior who is both sympathetic and sinless. He's both merciful and faithful, merciful with our weaknesses and faithful to uphold God's work in our lives and to shape us to be more like God. And the passage tells us how to apply this. Sometimes you have to ponder the Bible and figure out how should we apply this, but this passage tells us. It tells us by using the words, let us, twice. First, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, this is the burden of the book. It's the point of the whole book. These readers we gather from the book were um, facing relentless pressure from two sources, They were during the first generation of people who came to Christ. They had listened to those who had been taught by the apostles and they had come to faith in Christ and they were in a small, probably a house church in Rome. They were Jewish believers for the most part as the church in Jerusalem was until after 325 AD. It was mostly Jewish Christians and in their condition in 50 or 60 AD, they were facing this pressure to lapse from their faith in Christ. The pressure was coming from paganism without, that is the Roman population around them who worshipped the gods of the Roman Empire, and it was coming to them from their ancestral religion, that is Judaism. And in the letter, the writer uses words like fall away, draw back, harden your hearts as the danger that they're coming into to lapse from Christ and move back just into the worship of God as they had been taught in their childhood. And to them, he says, hold fast. Let us hold fast our confession. And let's face it, we live in a culture in which this is the word that we need to hear. We live in a culture that's moving rapidly, very rapidly, surprisingly rapidly away from what would be called a religious mindset, a mindset in which God makes sense in life. He's a part of life to a secular, non-religious mindset. And we happen to be living in the generation when more people have fallen away from the Christian faith than ever in history. That is, they were raised with some kind of adherence to the Christian faith, and under the relentless pressure of secularism, they have been tempted to lapse, to turn back. And many people are turning away from Christian faith to other ways of thinking. And so this becomes the message we need to hear. Hold fast your confession. Our mediator is one who effectively restores people to relationship with the living God. He has gone into heaven itself to represent those for whom he died. He is the one who solves the conflict between a God of infinite holiness and people who are sinful. 
that conflict is solved by the mediation of Christ. So we have to continue to trust him. That's the message of this passage, and it's going to unfold throughout the rest of the book. And then verse 16. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Now these words, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, only make sense in their context. I mean, I mean, if you want to take them seriously, draw near, it's saying that there's something about the nature of God that ought to make you apprehensive to go into his presence. And that's something our generation knows almost nothing about. People have an idea today. It's an idea they've made up in their own minds, and I would call it the Hollywood God. The Hollywood God, the one who's invoked at the Oscars many times by people, he is the universal grandfather in the sky who's just there to love on you when you feel the need for it. He's like a warm blanket ready-made that when you are feeling cold, you wrap him around you. This contemporary God is unconcerned with your thoughts and your behaviors. In fact, he's surprisingly pliable. He conforms to whatever it is you want him to believe or to think. And he conforms to your values and your behavior. He just wants to love on us whenever we feel the need for it. But I have to tell you, if you want to read the Bible and make sense of it, then you have to understand God in the Bible reveals himself to us. He doesn't tell us to come to him and just project onto him whatever it is we feel we want or we need at the present time. The Bible's God reveals himself as a true and effective father. As an effective father, his chief concern is nothing less than your behavior and your character. He's not indifferent to those things. Rather, he's He's supremely concerned that you would learn to reflect his character and his behavior in the way that you live. And if you want to understand that, you have to put these three verses in their context. Remember how I said this passage is a segue from the previous section to a new section? And the end of the last section, if you look up above, in verse 13 of chapter 4 says this, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The God to whom we are truly accountable is not one we make up in our own minds. He is the God who sees and knows and hears. He's the God who cares. He has established, based on his own character, his moral law, that he has written on human hearts and revealed in the scriptures, and he intends to effectively bring us to him so that we would live that way, and that requires a mediator. And so in that context, this God, for whom the scrutiny of his eye goes to the deepest part of every one of us, it's only in that context that these words make fullest sense. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. They're meant to calm us. They're meant to give us this assurance that this God who scrutinizes all hearts and all activities is a gracious and kind and loving God through Jesus Christ. It's meant to calm our fearful hearts before his infinite majesty and convince us 
that we ought to be willing to draw near and find that his throne is a throne of grace where we find not only forgiveness, but peace and mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Let's worship that God this morning. Our gracious God and Father, again, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would penetrate our hearts with it, that you would give to us a sense of your majesty, and in light of that, we would understand what it means for you to be gracious to us, for you to, in fact, open your arms and embrace us, forgive us, cleanse us, strengthen us. And that is why we worship you this morning, not because of your greatness, but because of your goodness that only makes sense in light of your greatness. We ask that you would accept us as we come to you this morning, that we would find in the bread and the cup those words of assurance that Jesus spoke to his disciples around that table, my body was broken for you.